and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle. The Appetite is all about bringing themes from our clinical work with eating disorders to the wider community, discussing themes of food, body, relationships, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhau, a therapist, artist, and writer. So often when we've discussed relationship to food and exercise on the podcast, we've left our recording times wishing we could have had some back and forth with some of you all. Today, Tam O'Donnell, a regular listener, joins Julie, Kara, and me to respond to our episode around how to eat in a food-obsessed world. She shares her thoughts and questions around what it means to have trust in your body, what to eat and why, and how to parent well when it comes to food and feeding. especially excited to have my friend sitting next to me. This is Tam O'Donnell, and she's been listening to our podcast from the get-go, and she's brought to me just questions she's had over the course of our episodes, and it kind of started an idea of what if we had her on on our show. Hi, Tam. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Happy to be here. As Kara mentioned, we're good friends, and I'm also a mother, and so I think I pay careful attention to some of the things that are brought up on these podcasts because I have my own responses to what I'm hearing and questions about that. But then, of course, I'm always following those up with how do I apply that to being the best mother that I can be and raise my daughter and my son? How do I bring them up in this world to have a really healthy sense of themselves and their body and and relationship with food? So I'm always curious about exploring more of these topics as they get brought up. Mm -hmm. So I know that in particular, you were drawn to the how to eat in a food obsessed world Mm -hmm. episode. Where do you want to start in terms of kind of what what struck you about that? Well, I think starting at the beginning, beginning of the podcast, but also the episode that, that you're talking about, but also the beginning of our relationship with food. I remember Julie, you were um, you started us off talking about the natural way things or originated. So we ate what was available. There wasn't as much emphasis on what it was, how it might impact our bodies. And although there's something that sounds really intuitive about this, it does make me wonder now that the times have changed so much and we live a more sedentary life. We're not foraging for food. Most of us aren't growing our own food. How might that change how we think about food? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think recognizing that we are in more of a developed time with a lot of the industrial revolution and the the development and agribusiness and just all that goes along with the food world and our eating as kind of a business, right, that mm-hmm. can be something that people are making money off of. That wasn't the original way, right? If you think of hunting and gathering and finding what you may and seasonal changes to how you might eat based on what's growing and what's not and So I think just speaking to, oh, yeah, that is very different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just kind of recognizing that as a timeline of, like, so much has changed with all the development of Mm -hmm. how food is then accessible to us. And, of course, there are less people farming now and less people that are growing food in the backyard or anything like that. I know the slow food movement and things like that are growing, especially in the Pacific Northwest where we are. But most people are still purchasing food that is from a grocery store and that they have not been involved with the production of. So, yeah, I think you bring up a good question as to does that then impact something at the biological level in terms of how it might impact our bodies and what we're eating? And can we actually be intuitive, right? right. Can we actually listen to our bodies? Can we actually trust our bodies? Yes. And I, I think it's it's a great question. I think there is obviously a lot of change that we 
can identify the, you know, the human body has gone through over that span of time that I'm you know, giving that short history lesson on. Yeah. And there's so much about the human body that still, when we look at it, still remains to be true. And I think to get back to the basics of just the fact that we're animals and that we have appetite and need and we go and we get what we need is still very true. So, And, th- that, and that might adjust based on the level of energy output that you're putting yeah. into your daily activities, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes sense to me because if you're thinking about living a less active lifestyle, then your body would adjust to that naturally, you're mm-hmm. saying. Right, exactly. So those that are still very active in their day-to-day and might equal the energy expenditure back to somebody that was a hunter-gatherer or just maybe just even working their own land or a farmer or something like that, tending cattle or, you know, whatever it might be. There could be people now that are still expending similar caloric expenditure in a day and needing, therefore, that much input in Mm -hmm. terms of calories and food. And then there's, of course, people that aren't. And I think that's where the – you're like, wait, what about those people? But, yeah, the human body adjusts to that. And I think that's where I – I go first is just metabolic science and the reality that so a human body is working to then meet the needs. And even when we are in a place where we don't have as much access to food, and that can be both physically or mentally, sort of that deprivation environment, the body then does decrease its actual functioning to then need less food. Mm -hmm. And so we see that all the time in terms of us watching people that are dieting or the obviously folks that are struggling with eating disorders and are restricting their intake, there is metabolically tested shows that their body metabolism does decrease and then they live off of less food. So mm-hmm. I don't have the facts in terms of, wait, well, back then, then how much did they live off of? And now how much do we live off of? It, but to me, it kind of feels irrelevant because the body is able to make those adjustments on its own. And then when I think about the kind of food that people had available to them and that they were eating, growing naturally. I guess I'm thinking more about the the level of knowledge that we had about the food that we were eating back then yeah. compared to what we have now. Mm-hmm. So now there's all this these studies and modern day science that can tell you a little bit more about healthy proteins versus less healthy proteins, more omegas, less omega, <laughs> healthy fats, mm-hmm. yeah, unhealthy fats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do we do with that information? Because it it feels uh, negligent sometimes to just ignore that when we have that information in front of us. And yet what I hear the common message in your podcasts are just to trust yourself yeah. Yeah. above all else. Above all else, yeah. Which I would say is also a critique we've heard from clients too of where, where does nutrition science come in and the mm-hmm. knowledge of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we take that in um, to – as one of the components of decision-making around what we're eating. Yeah. I tend to want to take a big step back with it to say, okay, well, why do we care now so much? And what is it about having all that information and that input about nutrition that then makes us have more or less of uh, input of food that then is giving us more nutrient-dense food or less nutrient-dense food? Or And I guess the the reality is that more information and education. You're in education. You probably know that maybe. (laughs) But like sometimes it doesn't actually lead to it. Like more information and education doesn't always lead to the behavior or the action that might be 
quote unquote, healthiest or safest for people. But what are the other factors? And that's what I would say is that many, many clients that come in that are struggling in our clinic with eating disorders know a lot about nutrition. And they still aren't necessarily caring for themselves well in terms of how they're feeding themselves. If it's not enough food or it's a mix of food or the chaos of how they're eating, right, the pattern of how they're feeding themselves, just not respecting that they are eaters, so they're not taking the time to that. So when I think about all of these other factors that an impact, I can't help but think, wait, is it really information? And then now, because we have all this information, who is actually suited to use that wisely? Right. And are they using it in the broader context? I think about Ellen Souter's work that you brought up yeah. as well in that episode. All yeah. the different variables beyond the nutritional science of food, but the how mm. and the relationship. and Yeah. I would say yeah. the nutritional science just gets really elevated, right, Julie, of all the factors. I mean, that's where... Yeah. And that's and I would say that comes back. We see it happen just in terms of how medicine is delivered in our present day as well. And I, you know, we haven't mentioned the word weight yet, but in a lot of times in a lot of the current day, weight and health are equated. And so people are saying, I am taking care of myself. I want to be well. But there's so many people that then are also seeing that as, well, I'm also managing my weight, quote unquote, managing my weight. And the two things that most people are going to quickly go to, and this is both in the medical field and sort of how health messages are delivered, is diet and exercise, diet and exercise. Uh, For health and then for a lot of the way it's delivered, it's oftentimes said, this is going to impact your weight to have it be smaller, be more what you naturally were supposed to be or be within your set point or have you lose weight. But there is this health emphasis that then gets this diet and exercise. Prognosis. Yeah, like do these things and then you'll have improved health. And so then you trickle down, okay, well then within nutrition, what can I do to improve my health? And you know, our philosophy around in terms of is that actually going to impact one's weight that we would say that that is unknown. For some people it could and for others it won't. And in terms of health, if somebody is taking care of themselves and feeding themselves, it's not just about having this perfect mix of the macro and micronutrients that leads to health. We actually see that it is how they're eating, not just what they're eating, that actually leads to health because of all the other factors involved. Because the what is still, what about what? Like, I guess I want to say that, yes, sure, we can still find some research. And that's it's a lot of correlative research that does show, okay, yes, like if you eat more omega-3s, you can have improved cardiovascular health, you know, something like that. Okay, okay. And when you look at the research, it's a, a lot of nutrition research is just not that strong because there's not all these other factors that can be controlled for. We just can't control them all. So you can find a lot of correlative type studies, but you can't actually prove that that means that everyone is going to have, yeah, is going to have that improved health effect. So then you have to look at your own self. And this is what I always say to people. It's like, is it practical? Is it actually practical in your life, in your own economic state and your own emotional state and your own time and or Mm -hmm. everything to be able to take that one thing off the shelf that's being advertised to be health improving and add that into your regular intake? For some, it could be. And is it going to harm you? Probably not, right? But is it going to help you? Who knows, you know? But for some people, when looking at it all, it would cost them way too much physically and emotionally to actually add that in. 
It could be financial costs. You add that potential for layers of stress. Mm -hmm. I guess I wonder, you talk about how health gets boiled down to nutrition and exercise. What do you feel like is the the lacking component in that model? Yeah. Like if you had to say, okay, here's the biggest piece that's missing from that concept Mm -hmm. or that model. So I do come back to trust. I shared the four elements of the eating competence from Ellen Satter, and that, if anything, those are the things that I wish could be taught, right? So it's having, like, eating attitudes. Can I feel okay eating something that I enjoy? Can I actually take in something that's pleasurable and feel at peace with that? Can I have excitement about food and, like, um, approach it that way? And then the food acceptance skills of can I try new things? At all ages, right? <laughs> Try new things and reject them and decide they're mine. And then internal regulation skills of the hunger and fullness and trusting my own body to know that my body can direct me to eat more or to stop when I'm, I'm done. And then the contextual skills are the ones that more relate to can I plan my life in such a way that I can actually pause to feed myself and take the time to set up my environment where I might eat to be inviting to eat and take time to shop. And so when I think about diet and exercise is what my kids learn in school about health or in health classes, that's what we're going to learn a lot about. Those four things, a lot of those things aren't being talked about. So I, my quick answer to people when they say, well, what would you wish were happening in your kids' PE classes about, you know, about health? And I would say that hunger and fullness is the thing and the trust you know, internal regulation skills is really the thing that I really wish could be there. And I'd love to jump into yeah. with that internal regulation being something that I think translates as well to psychological health. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big component of probably what we'd all say is is a big aspect of, of what is healthy. How, do, how can you be healthy, both in relationship to food and exercise and how you move your body and what you choose to put in your body, but also how do you choose to move in your world? How do you choose to relate? to the people around you? Are you lonely? Are you spiritually healthy? Are you, you know, beating yourself up all the time, no matter how good your decisions look on the outside? Mm-hmm. All those things would really impact your yeah. own health. Biopsychosocial yeah. model, exactly. right? Like if it's yeah. if we're just looking at the biology and yeah. the yeah. the the physical side of health, we're missing the other components of mm-hmm. the psychological and the spiritual and the mm-hmm. emotional. So it sounds like that trust component is yeah. the biggest I always come back to it. that you feel is missing. And, and I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because I feel like that is what triggers for me the most emotional response mm-hmm. to what I've heard in some of, of mm-hmm. your of Opal's podcasts, but especially this one about like mm-hmm. how to eat in a food-obsessed world because it is so contrary to everything I've heard, yeah. um, including, you know, my plate and what they're teaching in in the kids' schools, but also my own experience growing up and being in a context where I think there was a lot of controlling aspects around food and Mm -hmm. health really being thought of as weight and exactly what you're putting in your body. Um, It's just really difficult to imagine having complete trust Mm -hmm. in your body. And... And when I've spoken with good friends and even, you know, my own mother, that's kind of the biggest thing that comes up. Like, I just can't believe that I wouldn't fall into this abyss of gorging on Pringles and French fries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't come out of that. It would become a habit, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, and the hard part is when when you have certain ideas about that and have more, quote unquote, restrictions around that, if you were to let go and, and move into more trust, 
sometimes part of the process, maybe tell you know, Julie jump in, but it could it would be maybe potentially that you're then pendulum swinging and having like I remember my process of recovery. I mean, that was the most difficult part is when I moved from kind of restricting to to binging slash overeating slash feeling out of control with certain foods because I had had such a long period of restriction um, of, of a lot of foods in my life. And so to go, that doesn't, that's not what we're, that's not what we're going for. That's not a trusting kind of competent relationship with food, but often people go through that period, mm-hmm. which then I think that's terrifying to go through that. So we wouldn't want to go through that. So let's keep the control going. Yeah. Right. right. Let's, I don't, I don't want to go near that. So I'd rather stay restrained. That's and that was one of the questions I would kind of have back is is if one is to you know yourself or friend or family is willing to take that what's the what's the expectation? So is perfectionism with one's eating the expectation or the hope of what would happen? And then what is perfectionism of eating? Like, but there's probably like what's the ideal or like what the thought is that then that oh then it would be okay right at what point would you feel fully proud and satisfied with your eating yeah yeah if you had a trusting relationship with food yeah if you so if you let go of the control is kind of what you're saying you'd be out of control but to what end maybe you wouldn't like but maybe it would be it would look different than what you have identified as sort of what is the right way or the best way to eat. And so then is that just one of the reasons that people have a hard time taking the risk to try it? Because they still are going to hold to these ideals. I think it's kind of mm-hmm. what Kara is saying, but it's like hold to some ideal of like this is this is the right way to eat. So if I do this and I eat differently than that, then this didn't work. Right. <laughs> but that's not, yeah, it's you have yeah. to let go well, just of both the, the actions that you're and the holding yourself idea. to some kind of perfectionistic standard. Mm-hmm. It naturally yeah. sets any kind of experiment up for failure. I know. Right. And wouldn't you so, say yeah. that that's kind of, I, I don't know if perfectionism is too strong of a word, but a right way or the No, I mean, for me, eat, right? for sure, that's spot yeah. on. I think it, it it brings up like a much broader question, which I don't know if we're equipped to answer here, but like <laughs> why so many people have that reaction. Well, I, I also wonder about identity, like, like the identity that you hold in the way that you kind of move and behave in the world, right? And one of those being how you're eating. And if you strongly attach to this is kind of my identity and this says that I'm like a good person, like if you're attaching it to morality yeah. and identity, then we're talking about really deep things that are that are very scary to mess around with. Um, and I know that was my, I mean, I, in my disorder, there was definitely a self-righteousness of I'm kind of better than other people. Right. And to, I mean, that was embarrassing to admit that, but that was kind of the mentality. And so to. Cause to, you felt proud of that. Yeah. According I thought, to your own yes, perfectionist. Yes. Until I started binging, <laughs> I felt really proud. It was like more of a elevated stance, right? Like I have this good self-control or this goodwill. And but, I, I would love yeah. to look in historically though, because that's just the thing. It just wasn't as public. Like you went home, you ate ate whatever, you know, your mashed potatoes and beef and green beans or fried chicken and mm-hmm. your whatever. And then you just didn't, I just don't, people just didn't talk about it. Even in the, even like just early 1900s, people just weren't talking about that. Right. It just and wasn't so then, a focus of conversation. Yeah. And so I, that's, I, that piece is just it is fascinating, but that's why I say there's so much consumerism around it in that there's been a dollar scene in it. And even when I have st- like looked at some of that, it's so obvious, like, oh, there's a dollar to be seen in tomato juice. So then there's advertising put into it. And then they're using the female forum to advertise that this could lead to weight loss for tomato juice. When it started as like, oh, this is a really high vitamin C food and it's helping kids that need vitamin C in the hospital. What a great thing. Hey, 
you know. But then they say it's a low-calorie food. Is it? It's a low-fat food. And it, so hmm. I just think there is a lot of that snowballing. And who is getting the benefit of that? I don't know. Um, there's these, you know, that's where the agribusiness and all of that. That is, it's impacting a lot of things. And it is hard to sift through, uh, for sure. The other piece that I want to come back to, though, because I do think why is it, like your question of like why then do you feel that way? Do others feel that way about the perfectionism or that that need and that fear of being out of control with eating and food. One of the things that Ellen Satter's research has really shown strongly is that if one is controlled with their food, and that is a lot of her his work has been done in, in families, right? So in a young context, crosses socioeconomic status, crosses race, crosses um, at least the U.S. in terms of location, that if there's control around the food, kids will eat more. And if there's pressure to eat, you need to finish that, kids will eat less. So the control, if I can just focus on that, like mm-hmm. controlling it in an environment that's super controlled, kids are going to end up eating more. And I just think we see it in the young, in the behavior over and over, and it's been shown in the research that that, that persuasion and all this, that is what's going to happen. So then as an adult, if one says, okay, I, if I let go of this, you know, there's going to be some chaos with my eating. You know, if there's, if I don't have the pressure, maybe I'm going to eat too much. If I don't have the control, I'm going to eat too much. I it's just such a, a mix of all of that. So I just, I think that it is conditioned in us very, very young that that isn't something that we can just trust because our history has shown us that we can't. Mm-hmm. But the research really does show also that even though in those environments of control, in environments of pressure, the, the child doesn't regulate their eating correctly, when those things are corrected, just videos, you can go to our website and you can see videos, right, of it not being done well and then sort of it being done well. But it can be corrected. And then these kids actually start to feed themselves. There is, There still is an eight desire to go back to actually, no, I really just want the three tortillas. I didn't really want to eat 12 of them. But- I didn't know when I was going to get my next tortilla. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. hide it. I'm going to. I mean, there's all sorts of videos of these kids doing everything that you would imagine yourself doing <laughs> in all these settings. And it, the research has shown putting a bu- kids into a, a room full of every kind of food that they're going to find a balance of food. They're not going to just eat the Oreos. So it's just over and over and over. That's what is shown. And so, yes, all of us have a different variance of our history of being controlled or having pressure around food, if it's from our own selves or from family or from context, that we have to work through in order to get to a place where then, ah, okay, I can just listen to my body and my urges and and feed myself appropriately. But it's never been shown to be that we can't do that work. But it does require, and that's where it's a psychological parallel. And I think, you know, having therapists in the room, Tam, mm-hmm. it's always helpful. <laughs> having therapists around. <laughs> But we, it's true. We have to we we have to be able to dig deeper into the fullness and the full story around our relationship with food. It can't physically be, well, I was fed these things, therefore. It's not just about the what. I think that's what emerged for me for sure listening to mm-hmm. this episode was just yeah. how many layers there are to our relationship with food yeah. and how yeah. how much we all desire to to make things as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. And if you could just boil it down to nutrition, that'd be really convenient. Like I remember Carter saying in the last episode, like, hmm, doing some self-exploration and personal growth or just <laughs> yeah. picking a diet book and yeah. picking a few recipes. Yeah, um, There is 
there is this desire for Mm -hmm. it to be simplified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that if you have been controlled early on, that that would influence your relationship with food. I'm wondering a couple of things. I'm wondering what does that look like? Somebody Mm -hmm. who's had an interrupted relationship with food. Yeah. What does that look like? Because we as parents want to know what are those behaviors. And then following up with that, what are ways that it could be corrected? So I, I lo- the list that um, I wish I had it in front of me, but maybe we'll put a link. But it's this list of all these things, you know, no rewarding, no nudging, no coercing, no um, controlling, no like hints, hints, <laughs> hints of that? like, you can't, I'm trying to think of an example, but just like a hint that you're giving your child the sense that they should be eating that instead of that. Doesn't or, that look good over there? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. There, oh, yeah. Th- th- those green, th- that Is green that, veggie looks do good. Do you see the broccoli? Yeah. <laughs> looks pretty tasty. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. That's like a nudge. Just coercion for sure, you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of those things that is... It's clear that the parents has an, yeah, a lot of that. So, and I think, you know, she talks about also just the restrained feeding. So like literally feeding them a certain, you know, feeding a certain amount and then not giving people more if they're, you know, a child more if they've asked for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that would mimic food insecurity, even if there isn't food insecurity, right? And that's where then we can kind of parallel that to more adult dieting and well, maybe I have access to food physically. I have the finances to give myself food, but I, I can't. So this sounds very nuanced. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. The list is like, yeah. And poor feeding. That's one of her categories. Poor feeding. Like I put that in quotes in air quotes right now because it's like, what does that mean? mean? Yeah. And that's where it's just this like coercion. The the context might be chaotic. I mean, it's all these things. And then the other piece that she does talk about that is one of the things that leads to less of a competent eater as a child is that a parent interfering with a natural growth curve and natural body growth and having reaction to where a child might be. So that is back to sort of I said, like so much concern and, that, and fear is, that is around typically weight. verbal, like commentary, body language. Well, it's going to be how they interact. Too, right? I was going to say how they're going to interact with maybe the information they got from a doctor's office, right, about a particular growth chart showing that they took a jump or they're on the 85th percentile. And then Mm -hmm. the conversation that follows in the car on the way home. Sure. Mm -hmm. And what could we do or what, what does that mean? Maybe is there anything that's impacting your weight? Yeah. (laughs) And then it's also commonly then a, a way that then the child's food could be restrained from the parent. So if it's like a determined amount, like this is how much this they, that you should be having. So then they're serving it and taking away or not having um, ac- the child not having access to food in the way that they may need to. Uh, not trusting. I, I mean, that word trust kind of coming up, but just not trusting that the child could could follow a trajectory that's healthy for them. I think one of the things is always good, important, is really important to say. And Ellen Satter does a lot of work around the growth curves and is that, you know, we have, uh, you know, one or, you know, zero, but I guess one to um, 100% on these growth curves for a reason because people have to plot on all of them. And so there are going to be people that naturally plot at the 90th, the 100th percentile. And that is just in our current day is something that people react to. But what's healthy for that person that lands at the 100 needs that, yes, the, the most consistent thing is that they would stay at the 100 because that's probably what they're supposed to be at. And there's a lot of desire if somebody sees anybody above the 50th percentile is that, well, they're supposed to be the 50th percentile. And so we need to correct that and fix that. And so these kinds of 
things around the table and around the way that they're feeding them is. And to add like a a, a psychology idea or term in here is I think the fear you're saying trust and the opposite is like kind of the fear, right? Like if, if there's elements of fear um, around what's going to happen. And of course we care so much about our kids. So we can mm-hmm. have, there can be lots of ways of having fear in parenting, but fear versus ease. I, I like those two terms too, of like, mm. do we have ease around these things or are we more bound by fear? That to me is like a flag for my own parenting around, around different mm-hmm. aspects, not just, I mean, not yeah. with necessarily with yeah. food, but. And, I, and you may have a different rebuttal, but I know that commonly I'll get the rebuttal of like, okay, this, some of it sounds so hands off. Like laissez-faire, like what are you telling me to do? You know, this is actually, and I think the thing about Ellen Satter's approach is that it is not. I mean, you can list. She also has like very strong list of like this is what the parent is to do, and it's it's not easy. I mean, it's not like it's it's not absent parenting. It's I not a, a passive. No, it's no. not. It's intentional. It definitely is, and I like. Control versus responsibility would be the thing that I would say is that there is still a very, you know, she talks about division of responsibility in feeding. And yeah, it's not about control, but there still is responsibility. I mean, the parent still has a role and a very important role. So thinking about correcting, maybe. Okay, positive. Move forward to change, right? (laughs) What what does that look like Mm -hmm. in terms of repairing maybe some of those relationships with food that you might have impacted your kids around? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things could be, I mean, if there is a, this is a better food than that food. I mean, I'll just say that as a common thing, right? Like maybe it's, you need to eat your vegetables before you get dessert, let's say. One of the things just could be say, we're having a different approach, you know, and just just entering in to say, we're going to take this some differently. And I'm not, you know, you can eat whatever you want to eat in terms of what we're serving in terms of the main entree. And then I'm serving dessert. Her, her approach is that you serve dessert with and everybody gets a serving of the dessert and you serve it at the same time as the meal. And, and that in and of itself, the way that you're serving it communicates that's neutral. That is part of what we're doing. And there's a special, there's no reward. It doesn't have to be affiliated with a you know, graduation or something special. And so I just think that you can make changes. I think kids can adapt. And they, that's what they've shown, that kids can adapt and those changes can happen. And then one of the things about desserts that end up getting the like bad rap is that she also will say that, okay, then, you know, occasionally if it's once a week or something, you put out a plate of desserts and you allow them to have free access. So you allow them to have a time where they're not having the restraint of like, you only get one serving of this. No, we get a plate of cookies, you know, on Friday afternoons or something like that. And you just let them enjoy uh, and just allow them to do both. So in the first scenario, it's, yeah. it's, you're controlling the quantity? There is. Yeah. You're saying I'm serving dessert. I have a pan of brownies. I made a pan of brownies. Like here's the brownies. And then uh, the other time is that you're not controlling the amount. And one of the key things in between those things is that you're also saying if they're like, but there's brownies left, I want more. And you can say, how about we pack it in your lunch tomorrow? Or you can have it with breakfast with a glass of milk. Or you can have it with morning snack. Or you, like you tell them clearly when they get to have it. If there's leftovers they see are physically there ready to be eaten. It's just clearly stating that wait, we're going to say, you know, we, we have that for that. And so as far as knowing when to control and when not to, uh-huh. like that sounds a little confusing to me, but maybe it's yeah. more clear if we were to really like dig into Ellen Satter's work more. Yeah, that's, I mean, she just will say, with the dessert is the hot topic oftentimes, right? right? Like desserts or treats or something like that. Um, so that's kind of why I went to that. But I think that allows there at least to be at the at the meal time, that there's this access to food. And the reality is that you don't always have more of everything, right? Right. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking yeah. of like desserts that get served of like, like, like a an, pie. Yeah. yeah. A, a brownie with ice cream in it and a dish. Like yeah. that's just, you're serving a dessert. It's not like a pile of something that 
they could get more of. I don't, right? But maybe you could add uh, what else is feels confusing about what to... Well, I'm just thinking like as somebody who who really likes something really clearly prescribed <laughs> okay. for myself. Okay. Like yes. I'm thinking, okay, I'm a mom and I'm listening to this and I'm like, okay, so now I know that at dinner time, you know, <laughs> serve dessert with the meal, one serving, but then occasionally put out a plate of more unlimited access. Mm-hmm. But is that one time a week? Is that you can decide. once can... every two weeks? Uh, probably is more it, often than Isn't it, it part of it like, like flexibility it though? Is. I mean, a yes. part of it is just like having flex. It's almost like, uh, I mean, I'm Maybe, having all these parallels yeah, I think to of like a movement. A box of something comes home or you, you're at the grocery store. Yeah, let's get that. Let's have that, you know? So it doesn't have to be prescribed, but it could be a part of a family rhythm, you know? But it doesn't have to be. I think each person is going to find their... But you like the prescription. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm I, well, and she's and saying, even, Julie, what you when you talked about the you're putting the brownies away, like you're each giving them one brownie. How is yeah. that not control? Yeah. Control. Right. What were you going right. to say? Yes. That's what she's asked. That's the right. confusion. It, right. It feels a little conflicting. And also, just to be clear, I'm I'm not just speaking on behalf of myself, but yeah. what I think other parents might ask. Right. You know, I yeah. think people really want clarity around yeah. this, especially if it's not information that they have right. a lot of access to yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah. I think that one of the things that's important is is just that, that people don't assume that there's only one time to have something or that it's not going to come again. Mm-hmm. And so I think flexibility is a really important thing. Which but... is a different level of control. Right. For sure. Wait, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I was thinking um, the opposite of that, saying mm-hmm. here's your brownie. And then I'm not going to let you know when it's coming again. Yes. I'm not going to give you any information around that. I right. hold, I am the gatekeeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I yeah, the emphasis yeah. instead would be on this is a regular occurrence. Like you get to have this. And so then later on when someone's deciding what they naturally want to eat, it's not, oh, okay, there's a brownie around. I better have that because I don't know when it's going to come again. I want all of them because mm-hmm. there are 12 and I mm-hmm. want them now. Yeah. So yeah. it's so special to me. And so instead introducing things that are special – in a normal way yeah. or, you know, or integrated so that, and embedded yeah. in their daily life, yes. not tied to a very specific thing that yeah. I've deemed right. special. Right. And, and so, yeah. the, the parent attitude seems to be a big part of it, right? Because if, if you're is. then, affra- like if you're still afraid if they have more than one brownie, how that gets translated to the kid um, without even you saying it, right? Like yeah. <laughs> that you're having fear around multiple brownies. Yeah. Right. Why is that even a trigger for you? Yeah. yeah. Right. And I th- that yeah. I feel I want to try to address that because brownies are different than broccoli nutritionally. So I can say that. I'm not afraid to say that. <laughs> but it does feel like, okay, wait, but what? But isn't that true? You know, I feel like that's a common thing, right, of going, okay, but so then – I, I, I'm not afraid to say that. Why am I not afraid to say that? But why am I afraid to say that? Um, <laughs> right? But <laughs> Okay. I think in one of the phrases that I use commonly in my, my parenting is just that that's not a dinner food. That's not a breakfast food. <laughs> so if there is something that they're just like, okay, it's time for snack or it's time for breakfast or something. So I'm thinking about this meal that we just were t- thinking about. There's a dessert being served and I don't know, broccoli, chicken, and rice. I don't know. It sounds kind of... Standard. Whatever. Okay. Boring. We'll go with it. Um, and some bread or something. <laughs> and and so then in that, you're 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 not serving the dessert as the main course. And that does commute. I mean, of course, it's communicating something. You're saying this isn't a dinner. These food. are all valuable to you. And I'm putting them all yes. in front of you in the hopes that you'll enjoy them. Totally. And in the context of an approach that's saying those things are accessible, this is something that you can enjoy. I'm okay that you enjoy it. I enjoy it too. And there can be a comfort in that. Then it's 
it's also okay to have there be, there is a bit of a limit in saying I'm serving this dessert, right? And some parents might be like, yeah, that's fine. You can go get another scoop of ice cream in the context of that dinner, right? And that's fine. Like that doesn't go against her philosophy that somebody maybe did get to have seconds of their brownie or their ice cream in that one dinner time. But it's just that it's still okay, I guess I want to say and affirm that it's still okay to be like, yeah, this is a brownie. I'm not serving that as dinner. I am serving this hot, warm dish food as dinner so that when at breakfast they're like, oh, can I have that ice cream? It is okay to say, oh, no, I'm not serving that as breakfast. You know, And I know I gave the example of, well, you could have the brownie for breakfast. You could plan to do that as a parent, and you could plan to in- integrate that that way if that's when you want to tell them that's the next time they get to have a brownie. But you can also hold the line of saying, because we are, as parents, are in charge of the what, and we can also say, well, I'm not serving that right now. So she does not believe in free access to food in terms of kids getting to ruffle through the kitchen all hours of the day. Mm -hmm. She believes in meal plan and structure in terms of meals and snacks. And so you do still So maybe you could quickly revisit that just in the context of this conversation. Okay. Yeah. 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 Her division. Yes, please. Just just that I hope that you will say more about this. But I think that this idea speaks to to the ongoing need for adults eventually to both give themselves permission and discipline. And right. so you're modeling that from the get-go as well of, yeah, there's a lunchtime and it's this is what you brought to work for your lunch. You need to eat it. This is what we have. Again, kind of speaking to yourself in that. So you have an internal model of that dialectic of permission and discipline. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine that as a parent, which I'm not, that would be an important thing to instill already. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. this is what we're having. There are limitations and also there's some permission yeah. sometimes too. Yeah. And one of the things that she also, so that the her division of responsibility is that the parent's in charge of the what, the when, and the where, and then the child is in charge of how much or whether or not they're going to eat it. And so in that what, when, and where, you're creating that structure um, and you're having that consistency. And that's one of the most important things for kids to just know that they're going to be fed and that there's going to be consistency of time um, that's honored and respected to be fed. And then in the moment when food is given, then they will behave intuitively. They can listen to their body because they know that there's going to be food again later. And one of the models that she also says is not, in addition to maybe the main entree, the chicken and the rice and the broccoli and the dessert, she would also say that you're going to have some staples that you serve as a family. So for some families, it might be bread, butter, and milk. And those are like the things. And they're always familiar and they're things that are really comfortable and when, you know, when she'll kind of reflect of like, well, maybe they didn't go for the lasagna, you know, because it was a mixed food. I mean, I don't, as a parent, it's mixed food. It looks different than last time. Like, oh, you used a different kind of lasagna noodle. So it looks strange, right? And the kid's like, what are you doing with this? The bread was there and the milk was there. And if they walk out of a meal having had bread and milk, that does give them the macronutrients and the, and a lot of micronutrients that they they need. And that's the the leaning into the belief that being fed and getting enough food and they're they're gonna be okay. And maybe coming back to that belief that it has to be perfectionistic, it, it comes back to that of going, it's it doesn't have to be. And that there are many, many kids growing well by just getting to occasionally take that you know, bites of some of the lasagna and the broccoli and the chicken and all that stuff and living a lot on bread and milk. <laughs> so here's an, so. here's a question though, Julie, that I think okay. a, that Tam could ask or other people could ask. Yes. I could ask whatever. So say, give that example again of the lasagna, mm-hmm. the broccoli, the bread, the milk and the dessert, and they eat the dessert and then that, mm-hmm. that's all they want. Yeah. And they, that's 
the only thing they're eating for dinner. Yeah. And they walk away, then how would you respond? How would you answer yeah. you to respond as a so parent? So I would say as a parent, in especially if that is, you just don't know how the kid is actually behaving with it, right? So where are they coming to that table? If that's if you know and you've been with them and they have not eaten and then that's all they're eating, it would probably be dysregulating to a parent because it feels uncomfortable and they're going to be okay. That's what Ellen Satter's model shows and over and over it's just that they're going to be okay. They they might have a larger breakfast the next day or they might come with a little bit higher need at snack time before bed <laughs> with a little bit more intensity towards you about that snack time, but it's it's going to be okay. Um, that over the course of thinking about the way that we feed ourselves, and this is true for adults too, is that we can't look at one isolated incident in terms of making sure that we've gotten all the nutrients we need. And I just think about a kid that might do that, what they've been exposed to at the table, even in mealtime can be five minutes long, honestly. That's in this research with her. It is, we are not talking long, stretched out times with beautiful music in the background and all (laughs) stuff. Like it's like the real life of parenting. It's short times, it can be, at mealtimes. And if they come and they then, they've seen, they've seen that lasagna that looked different and had the different texture and they smelled the smells and they they noticed and they maybe put something on their plate and they touched it or they put it up their lips and did, all of those food acceptance things help with exposure. And I guess I can speak as a parent that does have, I mean, I have moments where it's frustrating because I have more perspective that I feel like something's getting played out in terms of sort of power dynamic And I've been recently actually just thinking like, wait a minute, if I feel that way, that means that I'm not, I'm doing some of the things that she doesn't want me to be doing, which is some of maybe the urging or some of the little nudging or some of the little opinions. And I'm prey to it too. I mean, it's very easy because you care, we care for our kids and there's this moment that you're like, I just cooked all that. I mean, for me, it's a lot of the energy that I might put into it. And then if they Mm -hmm. don't show any interest, it's very discouraging. (laughs) And it's hard to not show that. It's hard to not show that. So I do, I especially feel like one of my kids knows that. And if he wants to get to me, he's not going to eat the food. And it's not about the food. I actually think, I'm like, he, I've seen him eat that food. So it's fine. He's going to be fine. When he needs the food, he's going to eat it. And I need to back off and I probably need to be more neutral on that. So you mentioned, um, there's so many places that the parent's responsibility is the what, the when and the where. And the where. Yeah. And so, if the child, say, at dinner eats the brownie and walks away and they're done, but then wants a snack at 8.15 and bedtime's at 8.20, that's the win. So do you hold firm to that? So I would say it's pretty important that at the mealtime, you tell them if they are going to have access to food again. I know that not everybody does an evening snack in their home. So, so awareness you can of ask, access sounds like a pretty it's very critical important. piece yep. to so this you, model. And I do that. I observe what's happening at my table, and then I decide. And if I feel like they're playing something out, there are times when I say, this is the last time I'm serving food. It is 7.30. We're having dinner. Bedtime's at 8.30. I, I'm not going to do another snack. So this is the time. I want for you guys to make sure you're attentive to the fact that this is the last time I'm feeding, putting food on plates and putting food out tonight. And, and they so just consider that. they like that very much, mm-hmm. but at the same time... You're not instilling any fear about no. food scarcity. No, nope. or... it's nope. more dynamics. I mean, yeah, it, what it she's is. describing right there is like relational dynamics between her and her kids, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's yeah. that's what's so interesting too about the the table is it right in place. Yeah, I, yeah. I just think it's okay to leave it be and let them then listen to their body. I want utmost, as you can hear, right, is trust. I want trust. I want them to be able to know that I trust their body and I trust their appetite, their ability to listen to their body. Mm -hmm. And so if I can at least give them that message, like, okay, I just want to make sure that you're getting enough food so, you know, that you know you have it and that your body, you're listening to your body and 
that this is the last time so that you can go to bed and wake up in the morning ready for the day. Like it just comes back to that. Like I just want to make sure that they they know that I trust it. Mm-hmm. I trust them. And I think that's one of the most important messages to give to them. And I think to ourselves to parallel it to the sort of the adult thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, can I trust my own self? Can I be in that context with my own self as an eater and know like, okay, have I listened to my own body? Do I trust my own body? Do I to then know I can I can leave some of this food here or I can go get more because I am connected in this moment and I also know that I can have food again later. And I would say that for for you, Tam, or for anyone else that is kind of awed by the question of do I trust my body or how how would I even start that process or why isn't that there to begin with? I feel like that is a good question to continue asking, like, what are the messages that I've gotten through my whole life that say that I shouldn't, whether they were really overt or more subtle? Mm -hmm. Because I think once those messages can get broken down a little bit more, it probably was never about the fact that you naturally ate too many brownies in your life and therefore you're untrustworthy. It's probably about more messaging or more relational dynamics or trauma even, all these different things that can tell us why our body's not trusted. And right. I don't think that our culture really sets us up on any front with food or otherwise, especially as women, to say that your body is a trustworthy source of wisdom and information. Mostly we're getting opposite messages. Mm-hmm. As we wrap up, are there other questions that you have, Tam? Okay. So one thing that we haven't touched on yet that I've been extremely curious about is, you know, I remember when you said the most concerning issues relating to dieting emerge during reintroduction of foods after a period of restriction because of the biological impact that it might have on a person. And that made me wonder a lot of different things. But one of them being like, what about a two-week experiment? Is it really that bad? Mm-hmm. So if someone's cutting out yeah, sugar let's for say two for weeks two weeks, I decide yeah to eliminate all sugar. Is there really that big of a biological impact? And at what point does it become concerning on more of a long-term level? Yeah. So I it is, I mean, I sort of want to speak to the psychological piece yeah. first because that's a piece that I think you hear on the podcast so often, right? And mm-hmm. that we talk and we keep on addressing. So I don't want to miss that, but I will get to the biological. But the making, like having a restriction for a period of time, however long or short, is still what we see as a as a diet, as a restriction. And then that is something that leads to the consequence of what we see in deprivation and deprivation action, sort of, which is usually more chaotic behaviors with food and the psychological impact of can, I don't know, like for somebody to actually take the measures to do something like an elimination diet or, you know, eliminate a particular category of food, uh, 30, the whole 30, or, you know, do something for even two weeks or something. There's there's a lot of one's capacities that have to be put into that. So they're having to look at food labels, right? Or you're having to um, take time when you're shopping that's more than your normal. Or um, And then you have to believe at a level, like to believe it enough to do it. And that it's going to have some positive impact, I think, because there's a lot that you're sacrificing in order to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like there is a belief in that that is hard to walk away from, if that makes sense. So the people that aren't doing it probably don't ever get to the point of believing it that much. And so the fact that somebody's done it for two weeks and then stopped doing it, they still probably believe it just as much. So the psychological impact of like not doing it and then therefore failing and not eating perfectly according to what they think they should be doing, I think is like the the reentry 
psychologically that I think is so challenging mm -hmm. and, and detrimental. I don't know if you say anything else to that, Carter, but. I think that that sounds pretty good. I do, <laughs> I do think that it's, it reminds me of the qualitative versus the quantitative relationship to exercise that you might be able to kind of do the same thing, but how, what's your attitude about it? Mm -hmm. And the fact that someone might have to intensely actually pay attention to their habits and what they're putting in their mouth in such a way that, you know, with our relationship to food, we're doing it all day long and we might be hungry and all these things. So that little alarm bell of, oh, I shouldn't eat that. Oh, I shouldn't eat that. How do you get rid of that? Yeah, that continuous preoccupation exactly. becomes sort of a way of being and consumes your energy. I know. I find that to be one of the reasons that I think people become more cycle chronic dieters, like people that try it or do it, do it again, mm -hmm. because they're kind of stuck in that and be like, oh, at least I have the relief of that chatter in my mind for that period of time because then I'm doing the right thing. And then that moralistic, like I might feel better about myself or kind of attributing some sort of character traits along with the fact that, well, I'm so disciplined, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And just... Uh, it was a time I was really proud of myself mm -hmm. because I wasn't doing this thing and I want to get back to feeling proud of myself. Yeah. That, I think right. that that translates really Tying quickly. your sense of esteem and right. self-worth to the time when you were eating. Your success that. or lack yeah. of success once you've committed on that journey because you've bought into it. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, it sounds like a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it comes down to actual benefit, sort of health benefit of it, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting because there's so much placebo effect that can happen. Also, when somebody has all of those psychological things that you guys are just sort of touching on, right, of how it might feel for somebody to have done that and had those actions, is there actual health benefit or biological health benefit. And, you know, we're all about food and body wisdom and embodiment and listening to oneself. And that's one of the things that I will hear from people. Well, well, and I eliminated sugar. You, Yeah, I mentioned that. It's like if I eliminate sugar for a period of time, I feel so much better. I sleep better or I have better energy or all those things. So then, okay. <laughs> but then it's hard. It's hard because is it really, is it, is it the mix of all of these beliefs linked with the placebo effect, linked with is that what it is? or And is there some biological piece to it? I would also add, too, that it, it does it does make me wonder, you know, if, if there's been an elimination of a food and suddenly someone feels better, what was the relationship to the food before that? Was it something that they were just having when they actually genu genuinely wanted it? Were they having it and then binging on it because they sometimes mm -hmm. did feel like, oh, this is the only time I can have it? Or was it just like a normal part of their diet that they, you know— just had sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I would so I would think like, yeah, if, if you're only having sugar or, or there are meals that are just composed of that, maybe it wouldn't feel awesome. I don't know. But if it's something that you are regularly integrating into your, your diet, the absence of it probably wouldn't make as big of an impact sure. um, rather than biologically if suddenly it was a main thing or something that you're having all the time. I don't know, Julie, if you'd yeah. have anything to that. No, but yeah. I was trying to rack my brain because I feel like I've I've list I've I've read something in regards to certain um, demographics that then have an have an easier time just doing something like that. Like short term and mm -hmm. uh, and and why can they sort of not develop an eating disorder? Um, and what is it about that? And some of it is that I think that it's just not that um, important to them actually. 
so they can kind of do it. It's people that join studies just because they want to be the control in the study because they get the $45 or whatever. Right. Like that's that's the that. It's like those people can do it, but then it doesn't lead to any major consequences. So Yeah. I, yeah. But I, I guess the other piece in terms of what you were talking about, if just to continue to sort of name the what when I when I spoke to the re-entry being so much more challenging, a lot of it is this, which I do think impacts our biology because of our emotions connection and our brain and our gut connection, you know. But physically too, just at the elemental level, like when we eat food that is common and familiar to us, our body knows how to digest that because we have a mix of enzymes and different acids and bases and things like that that are just in our our bodies and in our gut that then help to digest things. And that is a mix of, oh, this is a, even like I think of probiotic and prebiotic, right? So these foods that then are creating these bacteria to then help keep that flora up. And if you stop eating some, then yes, your body is not going to have that same input and same creation and ability to create that bacteria. So when we just eliminate something that then our body's used to having, when we maybe bring it back in, then what's the impact of that? Because we might not have the enzymes yeah, available exactly. anymore. Yeah. They were stopped being produced. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And some of those things come from our body and are created. Some of it is with the other foods that we've eaten. And uh, I always, we talk a lot about this at Opal is just that you never eat one food in isolation. And so while you might say this food can increase somebody's blood sugar level quickly and then have you dip and then you're going to have low energy and all stuff, the reality is that when do you only eat that one food by itself, right? For like three days in a row or Yeah. I mean, meal. it's, yeah. When are you only <laughs> eating white rice? You know, you're never no only, I mean, very rarely are you going to only eat white rice. You're going to eat it in combination of other foods. So the right. same thing is that then, so the body can lose track of what it's used to then interacting with and digesting and having the metabolic impact of that. And that can cause digestive distress, right? And 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 also then can filter into energy level or to clear mindedness or sleep and all those things. But so it, it could create mild discomfort. Like I guess I'm wondering sure. how extreme could this impact be? Okay. And at what point yeah. is it more kind of hazardous versus not generally recommended? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I, I find different people have various impact when they it, depending on, too, how long they've done an elimination of a particular food, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, commonly I've, I've worked with some people that were vegetarian or vegan and then started introducing uh, meat products. And even just the way that their body is able to um, digest that can be mildly distressing to, to moderately distressing for sure. And then they can move through it and their body can start to do it again, you know, to digest it again. So I guess it's hard to say. I guess everybody's experience is going to be different based on what it is they've eliminated and whatnot. And then I've also seen people that have done such an extreme around elimination that even when they do try to reintroduce, it's it's high intense distress and they can't do it to the point that they end up developing an eating disorder and having a lot of biological impact of lack of nourishment overall because they've eliminated so many foods and then gotten themselves in this predicament that when they've re-eaten these foods, they have major distress, both psychologically, but I'm talking biological distress, like vomiting and diarrhea and gastric cramping and, you know, I mean, just major distress that they just really can't Mm -hmm. get those foods back in. And it's so so aversive to them that they would just rather avoid it altogether at that point. Right. And then probably the messaging that they're receiving from their body being in distress is, Oh, that's a toxic food, or oh, uh, you know, yeah. Wh- how could I have could put that in my body in the first place? To their favor, right? Exactly, yeah. And so I, I, I just more so look at it going, it's not worth it. 
Mm-hmm. Like why, you know, we are not dirty. We have we have our liver and our kidney that are there to cleanse the toxins. Like we don't need to do cleanses. We don't need to do these detoxes. Like just allow ourselves to keep living in our everyday life and do reasonable things mm-hmm. <laughs> um, versus the extreme because the risk, I just see the risk to be way too high. Interesting way to think about it, huh? It yeah. sort of shifts everything. Yeah. I, to me, when we start talking about food, it's hard to not then translate it to all these other areas yeah. of one's life to notice, oh, you know, how how else am I being restrictive? How else am I not trusting myself? And where else am I getting myself in a predicament because of that cycle that I'm mm-hmm. I'm acting out? And then we're most concerned with, with the food, which right. makes sense because we can control it. But there's it. this domino but, yeah. effect that happens at a deeper and deeper level internally, biologically, yeah. right. that I think the average person is very clueless about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's helpful for you to kind mm-hmm. of illustrate what mm-hmm. that looks like. Yeah. And I know well, we can put this um, link, but there is really, really strong research now that's more so researched the chronic dieter. So somebody that has cycled and cycled and cycled <clears throat> through dieting for years and what the impact does on that. So they've probably tried every diet that our listeners thinking about and considering what we've seen advertised like for decades. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it is to maybe a bit of an extremer level, like a chronic dieter versus somebody who's just going to jump in and try one thing. But I do think it's good to look at the research that then is showing that, you know, I mean, there's higher incidences of some of the commonly thought of metabolic disorders like diabetes and mm-hmm. um, hormone irregularities around fertility and around polycystic ovarian syndrome and things like that that are just cardiovascular system risk is increased for those that have chronic diet, damage to bones. And there's just a lot of that that we often in this day and age, it's often attributed to somebody, it's often attributed to, oh, well, everybody needs to stay in a smaller size body to prevent a lot of these things. And that is what's going to keep people from being sick, quote unquote, with cardiovascular health or hormonal distress or what other common sicknesses would you think of? Cancer, you know, whatever it might be. Like you got to got to do that by keeping your body small um, or normal, at least, quote unquote, mm. on the BMI. And what this research really backs up is the fact that people that are consistently trying to stay smaller and probably to an unnatural level end up being larger in size. But it's not their body size. It's what they've been doing over the course of their life that then has actually led to all these health concerns. Mm-hmm. And all the additional stressors they put on their body and their mind. Yeah. And that's, I want that message out more. It's just like, well, maybe it's a little dip the toe in and try this thing here and there for people, but I don't know because it could also be so risky Mm -hmm. because if somebody gets that domino effect that you're talking about psychologically and emotionally, then they just keep doing it. Get stuck in a cycle. Yep. Long-term consequences are shown to really, really impact one's overall health. Yeah. And then speaking as a parent, just to to want to model a healthier way of being. Yeah, that is like a very high predictor if there is a dieting parent in the household or if the if even just as a parent is eating differently than the kids and or maybe not eating the one part of the meal or something like that that then that speaking to kind of what messages are we, our kids are getting at the table that's going to be a strong message that they're going to see that really clearly. Yeah. And it's not shocking. It's not shocking and yet it's I think always good for parents to be reminded how yeah. our kids pick up on the subtleties, not the overt, like, do I look fat in these jeans, but I'm just going to pass on all the carbs on the table and, and just eat the salad. They're they pick gonna, up on that. Oh, yeah. They're they definitely going to get the message that they shouldn't be having carbs yeah. either. Yeah. Because they're getting I, the message outside of the home. We have to recognize that, right? Like They are mm-hmm. going to get that mainstream message that 
of some of these main normative food values that link up more to the diet culture. And so if they're going to get that, and then they're also seeing something, a behavior in a family member in their home, they're, they're going to jump to the conclusion that they, they, that That person aligns, Mm -hmm. this person aligns with what I'm hearing. Therefore, this is a trusted individual. If I'm going to trust everything else out there that shows that that's right thing. Instead of you being the person to counteract that within the family culture. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think a a lot of women really believe that if they're not saying it out loud, it's not going to impact their girls or their daughters. The one thing that we didn't get to that I'm especially curious around is if there are certain temperaments or personalities Mm -hmm. that might be a little more prone toward habits or addiction. Mm -hmm. And if really all people are created equal in their whether or not they can trust their bodies. Okay. That's a complicated that's question. Of, I but would say that's part of trust, right, is knowing yourself because we're unique beings and our temperament is a part of it. I, I, I yeah. love all the temperament stuff, yeah. but our temperament's a part of it. And so that goes to the kind of, I don't feel like we can compartmentalize these aspects of our lives, but knowing, kind of knowing more fully who we are and our temperament, that kind of is a lens on all of these fronts with our relationship with food, with our relationship with exercise. I don't, yeah. I the don't, other, yeah. And I think biologically, Sure. Appetite regulation does link up to hormones. And so, sure, there are some situations or conditions where those hormones may not be actually giving and, you know, firing and communicating in the ways that we would need. But I think we overestimate how many times that's the impact. It's a very small percentage of people that are going to have a biological metabolic disorder. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very small percentage. So I think that that gets exaggerated often. And in terms of, you know, addictions or things like that, in the midst of even somebody that might, I know that many people will see a parallel with food addiction. And I mean, we all are drawn to having positive experiences and having pleasure and those things. And uh, food does have a limiting effect to that. There is a diminishing returns when it comes to food addiction versus when other, you know, other substances. And so we don't, subscribe to believing that food is addictive. Does and, that include sugar? Yeah. I feel like as a parent, that's a big one. I know. The, the I message just that we get that our kids will get addicted to sugar. Yes. And I, I do not believe it. I really, truly believe that so much of the power, like you talk, you know, advertising and the concern around advertising, the power is not just in the chemicals that might be in the Doritos. It's about the way it's advertised also. And so then the mix of the whole context and then how we behave and if those are in our home or not is what is then making it quote unquote addictive. Mm-hmm. When the, even the research, when we look at people that are diagnostically binge eaters, when we look at the research, they are they are they're restricted eaters. They're deprived eaters. They are not overeaters. And so we have to kind of we always I always have that frame because that's what we get ourselves stuck into. If we can if we limit things and put them in a bad category, we are just going to want them. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think that that whole cycle that happens in watching our kids with that, so much of that is context. And when given the opportunity to just have that bowl of gummies out there, there's a point where it ends. If you do it more often than once a year, if you do it only at Halloween, yes, your kids are going to be crazy crazy over that. Not because of the sugar in their body, but because of the restriction of the sugar. Yeah. And I would (laughs) add too that there, there seems to be something about maybe an attitude around compulsively eating something where that's not necessarily trusted. Like you would eat something and never end. It would never yeah. end. Like I don't know if people are necessarily listening to how it tastes eventually for some of those reasons as well. I know that – I mean I've, I don't know the science around this too, but aren't there foods that are like genetically 
modified or there's some chemical that makes it salty so you're you're salivating more or something. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm, I'm thinking of some foods like that that yeah. right. I'm like, oh, I know that that's a food that, that does, does that, that, right? But if I'm slowing down as I'm eating and check in with my mouth, my head, my stomach, my body, yeah. and I really actually am listening to all the parts of my body, is it just my tongue that is wanting the food right now? Is my stomach also saying that it does? Mm, often not. After and you've had some. After I've had a good, yeah, after I've had yeah. enough and I'm satisfied and I liked it. And I think that oftentimes we're we're also not necessarily taught to listen to ourselves. <laughs> so back right. to the trust that it's not just about like trust with food, but do you trust yourself to to slow down? You know, are you attuned and embodied mm-hmm. to the experience of eating as well? Um, and is that okay to be connected to the food in the moment and then notice when you're when you're done? Mm-hmm. And that I think takes practice to notice. So it sounds like as a parent, there's kind of the what, when, where. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> what, when, where. There's the what, when, where, but then also the contextual skills that you want to be helping your kids understand so your attitude mm-hmm. towards the environment. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So we could just package that up and tie it with a bow <laughs> and send it in the mail to me. That would be great. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to our first season. We're taking a little summer break, so please stay subscribed and stay tuned for our next season. Thanks to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites music, and to Opal Sarah Taylor for production assistance and editing. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave a review of the podcast in your podcast app. This can make it so much easier for others interested in non-diet approaches to food and body to find the appetite. If you have any questions or just want to connect, email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. To learn more about Opal specifically, you can find us at www.opalfoodandbody.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to stay in touch. Thanks again for listening.